Tube socks, tube socks. Three fight out. Three fight out. Three fight out. Hi, I'm Spike Lee. When I'm not directing, I do this. It pays the rent, puts food on the table, butter on my whole wheat bread. Anyway, I had this new comedy coming out. It's a very funny film. She's got to have it. Check this out. Nola was something special. She had this amazing effect on men. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Good night. Good night? Wait, wait, wait a minute. Is Jamie there? I was the best thing that ever happened to Nola, darling. Ask her, she'll tell you that herself. Why, well, she worshipped me. Okay, so my my uh, real tongue twister is... Please, baby, please, baby, baby, please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Hey, hey, it's better than Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang. God, that's the end joke of the night. Welcome back to the Ways of Cinema. I'm Jack. I'm Corey. Yay! That's how you know you're part of the gang when you say your name after mine. Teamwork makes the dream work. And with that in mind, our first of what I hope will be many of these type of things that we do this year. Uh, last year, uh, we kind of decided to do a Flatliners versus Flatliners episode because the new Flatliners movie was coming out and we decided to take the opportunity to watch the original. And as you might have heard, if you go back several episodes back in September of last year, uh, we did that. And uh, it was kind of an interesting experience, you know, taking two movies that, you know, weren't you know the first one wasn't even that great to begin with at all, and then the remake was much worse. <laughs> Man, that was one of the worst movies of last year. When I think yeah, back to it, that was really bad. I always forget about that being so bad too, because it's so forgettable. But um, but we are not talking about something that's bad this time. We uh, I this was kind of inspired. Uh, we watched She's Got to Have It the movie, which I had seen before. This was my third viewing of the film. And we also took the opportunity to watch the series, which we didn't quite finish, unfortunately. Um, that might be, be a little disappointing, but... We watched the first half. We watched the first five episodes. It's a ten-episode series. I think we watched enough of it where we can, yeah. I think, adequately kind of assess the show, uh, at least up to a point. I mean, who knows? Maybe the show becomes, like, Breaking Bad after <laughs> we left off. But part of the reason I wanted to start off with this as our kind of versus series, it kind of goes back to um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock with uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And uh, he did a version, he, his first version of that was in 1934 with Peter Lorre. Then 22 years go by and he decides, let me tackle that again. And, you know, this time, instead of being, as he called it, a kind of, you know, talented amateur you know now i'm a seasoned professional and you watch both those films and they both have their strengths and weaknesses in that case i actually like the 56 one more than the original but that's just me in this case though spike lee uh him as a seasoned professional a very different kind of spike lee in some ways maybe not all the ways but to call him a seasoned professional now is to kind of lose sight of who he was at the beginning of his career. Yeah. Um, so anyway, for those who don't know, She's Gotta Have It. Uh, it's the story of Nola Darling. And uh, she's this very you know, bright, very opinionated, 
very tough, also very sexually active uh, woman in Brooklyn in the 80s. And she has three boyfriends. Uh, and they're very distinct, each of them. Uh, and it, it kind of, the movie is just a relationship drama, uh, movie. It's, it's partly a comedy. Uh, it's also a drama uh, in parts. And it's very much a first film. Yeah. So, Nola, yeah, she has these three main squeezes, and they're each kind of exaggerated characters, and they represent one element of one element of a man's character that you might find attractive, but exaggerated to such an extent that they are all kind of unattractive as solo mates. Yeah, I mean, in each of them, they, they kind of run the gamut. Cause, and also, Nola in the movies played by Tracy Camilla Johns. The other characters, you have uh, Jamie Overstreet. He's played by Tommy Redmond Hicks. He is the nice guy. He's the one yeah. who is, you know, and when I say nice guy, you know, it's not that he's nice all the time. And Believe ev- me, yeah. Yeah, eventually he kind of reveals that he has a dark side to him. But he try, but he's the one that wants a committed relationship. He, you know, he doesn't like playing games. He's very much a kind of guy who, like, I know what I want in life, and I'm, you know, I have my shit together. He's the guy you take home to mom. Yes. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he, he's very much the, I'm a clean-cut guy, you're going to take me to mom. Then you have uh, this guy named John Canada Terrell. <laughs> that's quite a name <laughs> for a guy. Um, and he plays Greer Childs. He's Mr. Bodybuilder. I am in love with how I look. You know, you bet. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like Lando Calrissian, but with extra grease in my hair because <laughs> the '80s. Greer is frankly an arrogant jerk, but he is super fit and great in bed. Yes. So that's that's clearly why, in, in large part. Uh, uh, Greer, that she goes for Greer because clearly he's probably a dynamo in the sack. They even have, like, Spike Lee has this little montage where I think he has, like, African jungle sounds playing as, like, he shows these different positions of the two of them, like, uh, copulating. Yeah. It's a very entertaining bit. But the most entertaining part of that is the lead up before that. As he's very methodically taking off his clothes. And folding them up. Yeah, it's like, it's supposed to be sexy, and yet he's folding up his clothes. I, I'm really glad you mentioned that, because I loved that. That was the kind of seemingly minor character moment that really tells you a lot about who he was. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that Spike Lee was really good at in this film. Like, having little things... Not so much with his character, because Spike Lee is in the film, too, and he plays Mars Blackman. And in case you don't know his name is Mars, he has it as a giant chain around his neck. And he's the one who makes her laugh. Yeah, he's very silly, very goofy. He makes her laugh, but he's basically a full-time, almost court jester figure. And... He almost kind of humiliates himself just to get laughs out of her because a lot of his humor is based on the fact that he's kind of a loser, that he doesn't make a lot of money, that he doesn't have game. He's a bit of a hustler. Like, there's a part where he's 
on he calls up her when he's when she's in bed with one of the other guys mm-hmm. and then like he gets off the phone with her and immediately calls up another girl but his humor there's definitely an element of self-deprecation to his humor yeah well maybe part of that is because spike lee wanted to write it knowing well i'm a, I'm a short nerdy looking black guy you know it's hard for me to get girls unless if i'm you know Making lots of jokes. He wears gigantic glasses throughout the entire movie that are amazing. They're so gorgeous. I have a real glasses obsession, if you guys can't tell. And and I think, well, the, the thing that kind of, you, it, they all have, the guys all have in common, you know, they want her to commit to them, which is, you yeah. know, obviously how usually these things go. I mean, they're not, the men aren't really willing to share her with, with one another, um, even though eventually they have like a very funny, kind of awkward, then very funny again scene at Thanksgiving, yeah, where she invites them all over. Um, the thing about this film, I look, I actually went back to my original review, and um, I'm curious. Do you think that uh, is this a feminist movie, or is Spike Lee kind of having a feminist view on this? I would say that the movie is not explicitly feminist in its dialogue. Like, the characters don't beat themselves on the chest and say, I'm a feminist. That's in the TV show. (laughs) We'll get to that. But I think it is feminist in the sense that the character of Nola Darling isn't punished and judged too harshly for wanting to have multiple relationships and for also prioritizing her own needs and her own wants. Yes. Well, I think that to me, in my, actually, I just found my original review. I think that we see her, her, she's, we see her follies kind of completely. She's a very flawed person Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I think that's, if there is kind of a male view, it might be, you know, obviously because he, he kind of knows what guys are like. But I feel like he knows also how what women are like, too. Like, it doesn't feel like a film that doesn't get women, though, yeah. if that makes sense. Now, I think what's interesting is that Spike Lee came out. He said in, in, a, in an interview recently that he wanted to have, like, a lot of women in his writer's room on his TV show because he thought, like... Well, I would need to have more of the female perspective because I wrote that movie and I wasn't, you know, a woman. But I was surprised though watching it again though how much, you know, Nola Darling doesn't at all seem like a type. She's a very free thinking, free individual. Yeah, what I liked about Nola's character is both she felt very realistic and I think you nailed it when you said she feels like a very individual creation. I feel like I am not a big fan of the romantic comedy genre. I'm really not. And in some ways, you could almost call this a romantic comedy. And one of the things I don't like about the romantic comedy genre Mm -hmm. is they rely on obnoxious stock characters. And the male characters, you could maybe say, are slightly stock characters. Yeah. But Nola is not. Well, it's meant to be, like, he made the movie as, like, have, like, a a satire on, like, the battles of the sexes. You know, and it's like having this kind of framework 
I mean, I don't know if there are a lot of women out there like Nola Darling. I guess maybe that was part of the idea. Um, what's interesting is that uh, we talked about this when we were watching the film, that it kind of reminded both of us, and I, I should have placed this when I watched it the other two times on my own, how much it reminded us of Sex in the City. Yeah, it was very season one Sex in the City, back when Sex in the City still did random testimonials, because... Yeah. There are other characters unrelated to Nola and Jamie, Greer, and Mars who talk directly to the camera. Yeah, there, there, are, certain, there are a couple of segments where, uh, and very, very funny ones, where Spike Lee has men talking to the screen. And, you know, some of them show, like, off their terrible pickup lines. Yeah. Which, I guess, they are real pickup lines. <laughs> I've heard those type of lines before. Um but, you know, that was back when Sex and the City, they didn't know, I think, quite what kind of show they were going to be. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they were basing it off of a nonfiction book. You know, like, in that, and that book didn't really have, I mean, that had kind you of characters. You listened to the audiobook oh, God, of Sex yeah. and the City, right? I did. Yeah. I watched the show, but I never the read audiobook the book. The audiobook was all right. It wasn't, like, anything great. I think it was trying a little too hard at times to be really provocative. Mm-hmm. And it didn't quite get there, but um, but I could see why the show in its first season came out of that book because of how it, you know, it tries to take a little bit more of like, well, what you can almost call like a bit of a mosaic approach, mm-hmm. which is a little bit unusual for a romantic comedy to try to do. Um, but it's almost more like, yeah, we're interested in these characters and the relationships, but what about in this context of all relationships? You know, should we judge Nola too harshly for having all of these guys in her life? And, um, you know, it's it's also ultimately in the movie, if there is kind of like a storyline, it's ultimately that she has to decide, you know, who am I going to be with? Yeah, and I think there are characters in the movie who judge Nola, but the movie itself doesn't judge no, Nola. No, that that's the key difference. Uh you know, and it's funny because I almost, you watch certain romantic comedies, and as you said, that a lot of them have problems because oftentimes you have movies where you have problematic women characters, but the movie doesn't acknowledge they're problematic, yeah. or they don't have any characters calling out the women on their bullshit. And this one does, not not to the extent where it's too much, but enough to where okay, the, the, even, you know, the men and even some of the women realize that this woman has some issues. Um, and, you know, and also there's also a part of it that she could, Noah might also, she dabbles a little bit in lesbianism. Yes. And very dabbling, though. The, the show, again, we'll get into that. That's a little bit more broad on that angle. Um, and I... Uh, it's also just also the style of the movie, though, is what makes it stand out. It's a very stylistically daring film, especially, well, for its time. You know, again, Spike Lee, really fresh on the scene. He was literally, uh, when they were shooting the film, he would ask the cast and crew to not throw away any soda cans <laughs> because he would go and get, like, money from them. Like, that was, like, the budget for the film. And it looks pretty good, too. Yeah. Well, we were talking a little bit about director's first movies. Yeah. And how that, 
Sometimes a director's first movie can be rough. Yeah, I was... Before we watch She's Gotta Have It, I consider myself a Spike Lee fan. He's been so prolific, I've only seen about half of his movies. But I still consider myself a Spike Lee fan. I've seen all but one or two of his films, and that's over, you know, 30 years and probably like 40 films or something Yeah, like so that. I consider myself a Spike Lee fan, even though I'm not as well-versed in his work as you are. But... I approach this with a little trepidation because I've had some really bad experiences with directors' first films. Yeah. Directors who I love and I thought their first films were like unwatchable garbage. Well, not well. it's oftentimes a director on their first movie, they might be trying things out. They might be really fresh face they and sometimes you know some of these movies end up getting acclaimed too which is the part that's really baffling and the two examples we kind of had together were uh damien chazelle and barry jenkins yeah so we tried to watch after being after seeing whiplash and being blown away after seeing moonlight and being blown away we decided to go back into their catalog to watch guy and madeline on a park bench Mm -hmm. and medicine for melancholia Melancholy. Oh, yeah. Well, that, Medicine for Melancholia is the side movie Lars von Trier made, where it's just two hours of Kirsten Dunst on a beach or something. You know that she's got to have it. Women's writing room needs to tie down Lars von Trier and make him less of a raging misogynist. It would be an idea. So. You actually made it through both movies, but I hated yeah. both movies so much, I didn't even finish them. I would say Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench at least has the benefit of some entertaining musical numbers, but they're so sparse in the film that you have to just kind of watch a lot of nothing happen. That's the thing about them. Nothing really happens in those films. Also, I know I don't think you felt this way about this movie, but Jeff Nichols' first film, Shotgun Stories, I, I also I thought, thought was, was a crime against humanity. God, what? Everything's a crime against <laughs> humanity for you. If you had a crime against humanity book, it would be like <laughs> you know bigger than War and Peace. So I um, was a little worried, and I was so pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed. She's got to have it. Yeah, well, it, well, that's why I go back to the style of it. It felt like it was something different, and even for now, it feels like it has a really nice, sharp voice. There's a color sequence in the film that is gorgeous. Oh, it's um, amazing. And it's just one five-minute piece of film, which I guess he spent a little bit of extra money, and it was worth it. Like it, it, It's just a scene that takes place on Nola's birthday, and, um, uh, and Jamie kind of celebrates her birthday with basically just having these two people dance for them, and it's just, wow. Uh, also, it, it's gorgeously shot in black and white, too. It's shot by... The guy who shot a lot of his early films, Ernest Dickerson. Um, there's oh, there's one other scene I wanted to mention. Oh please, which I thought was amazing looking. There, it was this aerial shot where of Nola and all three men, and Jamie's in bed, Greer is in a chair, and then Mars is at the foot yes, of the bed. Right, right. And that scene looked amazing and it communicated so much about her relationship with all yes. three men. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's also a funny film, too. Like, there's a lot of times where the dialogue is very clever, and Spike Lee gets to have... You know, we've never really talked about Spike Lee as any kind of great actor, but within, like, his limited range, I think he knows how to play a character. Yeah, and he's... I mean, he wrote a character for himself that he could play well. I think a man's got to know his limitations. He's not going to ever be Hamlet. Yeah, he knows his limitations. (laughs) He wrote... Although, my only criticism of the movie visually is that it's absolutely ridiculous that Nola has this incredibly elaborate headboard, which she fills with candles, (laughs) because... All right. That's the Meryl Streep glasses of this No, actually, I don't think this is petty, because I'm going to assume everyone who's listening to this is an adult, and I'm going to assume everyone who's listening to this has engaged in sexual congress at least once. Regular headboards are not really conducive to going down to Bone Town. And a woman with a he- with a healthy sexual appetite who's having sex pretty much every night of the week constructs this incredibly large, ornate wooden headboard that's full of candles. It is a weird stylistic choice. This headboard would not last one night in Nola's loving bed. So I thought it was really weird. And even the characters, like, pointed out at, at times. So it's definitely a deliberate decision, but... No, someone who <laughs> is regularly entertaining multiple gentlemen callers would not have a crazy headboard yeah. like that. And, you know, as a first film that was shot for pennies, I mean, there are a couple of times where you notice, okay, they had to save a little bit on, you know, a shot here or there. Or, mm-hmm. You know, which, you know, compared to even something like, I rewatched Clerks last week, and mm-hmm. I feel like she's got to have it um stylistically holds up even better than something like clerks yeah she's gotta have it when it even though it's in black and white even though it was not made for a lot of money it doesn't feel primitive you don't feel deprived when you're watching no you don't well again but going back to those other examples we gave those were movies where the director just felt like he could do like a mood piece or something and yet um and who knows, maybe I, I could try to defend it and say, well, those movies weren't for me. But after watching those two films, I, you kind of wonder, how did they make anything after this? Yeah. Watching She's Gotta Have It, you think, okay, no, this is a good, decent calling card movie. You know, We know it's not mm-hmm. going to be his best film, but it announces, I'm Spike Lee, I'm a badass, give me mm-hmm. some more money so I can do other things. And, yeah. You know, obviously the next, like, five or six films he made after this kind of defined him for, you know, a generation and, you know, just for black filmmakers. Like he became, you know, the, he became basically Michael Jordan for black cinema. Yeah. Now a lot has changed though in 30 (laughs) years. Now again, Oh, the other thing we should mention too, though, is that the acting I think is the thing that can be a little bit here. Not with Spike Lee, but there are certain times where you can feel like, and, and I like Tracy Camilla Johns quite a bit. Um, there are times where I feel like she and even a couple of the, of the other actors, it almost feels like, did they only shoot one take of this? Yeah, I feel like the acting is what I called a little patchy. I, I, 
I think you had a little bit more of a problem than I did with it, but I noticed it a little bit more this time around, how it, maybe some of that is in the writing, but it mm-hmm. could also be the performance too, that maybe Spike Lee was still not quite great with actors yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, you're, you're still learning on your first film. I think a lot of his, where he really shines against was in the style of the film. With the actors, again, he was still kind of experimenting and kind of relying on them to do a lot of the work. It's stylish. It has an inventive structure. The characters feel fresh. It's a very entertaining film, and I'm glad we watched it. Now, going on to the series, which I almost want to look at the series as, like, one long film. As a sex-positive polyamorous pansexual, monogamy never even seemed like a remote possibility. Doesn't it get confusing juggling all of them at the same time? I'm used to knowing what I want in relationships and in my art, but lately I'm just so confused. So tell me a little bit about the men in your life. Oh, God. (laughs) Mars makes me laugh until my sides hurt. (laughs) Yeah. Greer is spontaneous. Nothing is ever the same with him. Jamie's grown, and he cares about me in a way that no one ever has. Your name leaves my lips the moment I wake from slumber. (laughs) Yo, that's the wackest shit I ever heard. I I know I hate to sometimes say that about things when it's it's meant to be structured as a TV series, but at the same time, like with Twin Peaks, The Return... Because it's all by one director, I'm tempted to try to look at it as one work. Um, I would say about the TV, about the new She's Gotta Have It, which Spike Lee has directed every episode. You can watch it on Netflix uh, if you have it. I think it might be like my favorite fiction piece of that Spike Lee has done in a long time. I think I like it a little bit more than you do, even though it does have some it has real issues but i kind of genuinely enjoy it which i can't say i have done for a lot of spike lee stuff in the past several years i have mixed feelings about it i'm going to keep watching it at some point we're going to finish it up i have mixed feelings about it and i called my mixed feelings to you what i call the girl with the dragon tattoo problem <laughs> Where... Which, why don't you explain this? Because I, I'm not sure the listeners will get okay. it. Okay, so when we saw the David Fincher remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I did not think it was a bad movie at all. But I thought it was a totally unnecessary movie because I didn't think there was anything David Fincher did better than whoever made the original Swedish Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And I said... If I had never seen the Swedish version, if I had just seen the David Fincher version, I'd probably be very happy with it. But the world doesn't need this movie because it doesn't improve. Now, do you think, though, if so, in other words, though, if you had just gone right into the series without watching She's Got Have It, the movie, do you think you'd be a little bit more favorable? Because I'm not sure if I would be. My thing is... There are things I like about the Netflix series, and I appreciate that we're learning more about Nola outside of her relationship to Jamie, Greer, and Mars. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure 
what this this series gives us that's superior to what the movie gives us. Yeah, and I should mention that this time, uh, Dewanda Wise is the actress who plays uh, uh, Nola Darling in in this series. Um, not quite the same like figure as mm. Tracy Camille Johns, but a bit of like the same kind of like intensity. Mm-hmm. I think where she's very very sure of herself as far as like you know that kind of character goes. Um, I I can see I think you have a fair criticism though. I think that in the first episode of the of the series, I think I I wondered to myself, huh? Okay, this is ex- this feels so much like the movie, like where you're just t- recreating scenes that I'm wondering why you're doing this. But as the episodes went on, I had both positive and not positive reactions to what Spike Lee was doing. Yeah, so I remember telling you after the second episode, I'm not watching all ten of these. I told you, I'll watch up to five for the podcast, but I'm not watching all ten. Now, I should say, though, but now you do want to watch the rest of it. I do want to watch the rest of it because... The last couple episodes got better. Yeah, they got better, and also, it's diverging more from the source material, which means it's standing more on its own as an independent work. Yeah. That's, that's something I noticed too, that it's, it's actually trying to develop also some of the supporting characters more, not just Nola. Mm -hmm. Like they're in the, in the fifth episode, you actually learn more about Jamie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cause in this, in, in the movie he didn't, but in this, he has a son. Yeah. And, uh, there's a whole plot line in one of the episodes that, um, God, that entire episode, which we just watched before we were recording, you mentioned that it was got like Shiraki. Yes. So we we saw the Spike Lee movie Chirac, which came out uh, a couple years ago. Uh, just as a reminder, Chirac is the very, very, very unsubtle satire which Spike Lee has a penchant for about uh, women. Uh, who uh, go on a sex strike to try to stop gang violence in Chicago. Now, I like Chirac in that I find it very entertaining, but I think it's stupid. <laughs> I it's, think it's really stupid. It's, it's the absolute greatest of Spike Lee's failures. I think it's actually probably not a good movie, but it is wildly entertaining and yeah. it's wildly ambitious. And it's like, I applaud Spike Lee because he's just like... We talk about like how again I mentioned the Hitchcock comparison at the start of the podcast. Spike Lee went from a pretty you know he had a lot of bold strokes as a filmmaker, but he mm. was usually more coherent early in his career. Mm. Now he just does whatever the fuck he wants. So I actually recommend Chirac, <laughs> yeah. even though I don't think it's a very good movie. Because it's just, it's so ambitious Dude, and so wild. Samuel Jackson plays a character named Dolomedes. Yeah, like... A, a, a Dolomite with a Greek chorus bent. Yeah, so definitely see Chirac. It, you have to see it. You're, it's so entertaining and it's so captivating and it's really compelling. Like, it grabs you. It's... But... It's so preachy and so yeah. melodramatic, and 
it's weirdly soap operatic and melodramatic and it's just it's a hot mess but it's a glorious hot mess he's a filmmaker who loves his again broad broad strokes you know i forget if spike lee over time if he got any comparisons with scorsese or anyone like that i think the one he kind of comes closest to actually is oliver stone you know they're both filmmakers who make big films about big subjects and in gigantic bold type and spike lee just keep you know again you see movies that he does like bamboozled or she hate me or miracle at saint anna actually that one's a little bit that's i didn't see miracle at saint anna because i thought it would be boring it was a little boring there were some um, amazing things in it um the thing is about him with the exception of like one movie red hook summer i don't think i've seen like a genuinely good spike lee movie since like inside man <laughs> so that's why i think this it had its issues but i think genuine i actually was more genuinely on board with this than mm-hmm. i wasn't like i there is some there are things though in it though that are don't work like what is going on with the subplot involving like this strip club yeah and one of nola's friends is is that how it's connected yeah i think it's just we're following nola's friend who's stripping at a strip club owned by fat joe which I, I didn't even recognize him we see fat joe um you know on the take and it kind of reminds you of watching the deuce or something <laughs> and we, it's like a less impressive and nola's friend who i don't even remember the character's name so it's just nola's friend is insecure about the size of her butt so she gets butt implants and we're following that journey so in the first two episodes i thought i don't i'm not gonna stick with this all the way through because i was like this is just an inferior remake that doesn't add anything to the movie now the sh- now the show is diverging more from the movie yeah. and there are things about it that I like that there are individual scenes that I think are really funny. Mm-hmm. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. That's all I'm oh going to say. God. Yeah, let's not spoil everything about it because I think some of you need to discover some of the wonders of this show for yourself and there's another particular character who refers to herself in the third person who is amazing yeah this is all in like the episode we just watched i think though to me watching this it's it's a kind it's it's so weird because there are times where i really feel like spike lee is so confident in what he's doing and he's Mm -hmm. obviously now he is like a master director it's just he's a master of his domain (laughs) (laughs) so to speak there there are times where my analogy is meant to be all that that (laughs) implies there are times where he is a little bit masturbatory in like not just some of his visuals but also in like how he lays in musical references yeah every time a song plays on the show it ends with a quick cut to the album cover it didn't do that in all the episodes though it didn't do it in the last one i'm wondering if they'll keep that up or if that's something that maybe he did and then a producer came to him and was like nah maybe we should quit that i said to you 
I feel like some of my problems with the show is I feel like maybe Spike Lee is trying too much to ape what he thinks hip young people like, but he is in fact 60 years old. Well, it, it, there's never been a time where Spike Lee hasn't been a socially conscious filmmaker. That's been, again, in his DNA since the beginning. Uh, and then, you know, he planted his flag with Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X as like the director of his generation who is, you know, conscious about the plight of African Americans and, you know, what their station is in the world, especially in white society, especially in New York. Um, and the, 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 on the one hand, he is still that same guy. He's still very much into civil rights and, you know, in this case, women's rights. He, he again, he has like a lot of women in the writer's room. But I have to wonder how much input they really have versus what his final say is. If maybe he has writers who are like second tier Spike Lee's <laughs> who are trying to make big statements but spike don't have. Yeah, they're little spikeettes. They're little spikelings. <laughs> little spikelings just following him around. And he's already a short guy, so these are like little tiny ones. Um, no, but, when I'm, but you make an interesting point, though, that they're. Again, he's never been, like I said, he's never been unsubtle about the points he makes. But maybe we're at the point where he's not, like, at the level of get off my lawn or anything like that. But he is someone who's trying to make these relevant points. And maybe now his style is not really fitting for it? Well, some of the humor, I think, really works. Like, some of the satire and some of the social content commentary i think really works yeah there are times i was laughing my ass off but some of it feels dated to me and i was telling you that you know there are are jokes about gentrification and the new new york and how everything's so expensive in new york but i was saying to you a woman of no a young woman of nola darling's age has lived her entire life in this version of new york well that was a problem that i think both of us had which I know, again, it's supposed to be a little bit of a satirical show, but we, at the same time, it's supposed to be set in some type of reality that should be recognizable, and it just seemed weird that she would be able to live by herself in this apartment in a very nice section of Brooklyn, Yeah. and they they eventually try to explain it, that she's getting it as a favor, and etc., but even then... I'm sorry. The way that prices are going up in New York City mm-hmm. and in Brooklyn, it you, you can't really have that. Yeah, and to, they do reference it. They mention Nola being behind on her rent. They mention, yeah, she's uh, she's the goddaughter of the landlord, so she has a deal. I think that maybe what might have made it work better is if they had emphasized a little bit more. Like, there is a scene where she goes to see her parents. Mm-hmm. And by the way, very nice casting, uh... Uh, Spike Lee's sister, mm-hmm. uh, Lee, I think is her name, or Joie, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. She was also, she was Spike Lee's sister in Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. She plays this character, Septima. Um, yeah, in real life, Nola Darling would be living in Brooklyn on Mommy and Daddy's money. Well, but... that's what I'm thinking. Like, was she getting money from them? Well, maybe if we had had a scene where she kind of sheepishly asked them for money and they give it to her. Maybe that might have made more sense, but the but the but the show makes it look like she's making it on her own as this 
independent artist slash teacher slash something else. Well, we see that we're supposed to believe she's got a lot of gigs and side hustles because we have a montage of her dog walking yes. and she's a teacher. And this would have been totally believable in the 80s that you could make it like well, that. Well, not even easy. the 80s. Probably even the 90s it yeah. could have still worked. Uh, I mean, gentrification started to creep in a little bit more, but not totally. It's totally been transformed, though, in the past 10, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, and I mean... And look, I, I obviously Spike Lee, you know, has a point. His, his his neighborhood has been completely transformed due to rising prices. Yeah. But, but it's almost now a point of, well you're not really going to change it, so why are you still being also, the drum about it? It's My thing is, it's already been transformed for so long that it wouldn't, that Nola herself wouldn't really witness the transformation because the transformation happened when she was a child. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a, uh, I'm remembering a criticism that, Pauline Kale had a review of the movie Bonfire of the Vanities, and she said in it that it's so weird that Brian De Palma was making this movie because he said everything in this so much better and more cohesively in this movie Hi Mom. And now, like, I'm thinking about how in Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee addressed gentrification perfectly in one scene. There was, like, this one scene where it's, like, the one white guy uh, is like it, it kind of run like happens to step on this guy's shoe, which is actually yeah. Giancarlo Esposito, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> if you go back and watch Do the Right Thing, if you're a fan of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, holy shit, how different Gus looks in the eighties. <laughs> um, but there's a scene in that where they bring up gentrification because here's this white guy who is living in this neighborhood. It's like, why are you living in this neighborhood? Well, I, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a really tough discussion, but I feel like that it's kind of happened. Like, what are you gonna say about it now? And and furthermore, now you have to deal with economic realities in the plot. Yeah, and it's kind of like we are several years older than the character of Nola Darling. I well, I well maybe by a few. I, I guess she's what like in her mid twenties. Yeah, I've assumed that Nola Darling's supposed to be a character in her mid twenties. We are thirty two and thirty three. Yes. Even we don't really have a lot of memories of kind of pre gentrified New York. Yeah. My very first ever trip into New York City was in nineteen ninety three and I remember getting briefed by my third grade teacher about how <laughs> I couldn't look at anyone or I'd be shanked or something. But even people of our age, older than this character, our only real experiences with New York are a gentrified New York. Yes. So it's not my pro I mean, so my problem when the show tries to address gentrification, it just feels dated because Nola herself would be a product of that gentrified environment. Yeah, she would already be part of that. And we get the sense that her parents are successful people, too. Yeah. Like, whereas in the movie, I feel like we didn't really see much of her parents. We saw her father was a musician, which they carried over a little bit. But we don't really get a sense full much of that. Now, I should say also the movie, I don't think the movie necessarily was as interested in the economics. Yeah, this, the show, 
I do appreciate the show is expanding its scope, which is something that I was worried it was not going to do after the first two episodes. So... Yeah, and maybe they'll do more of that as... as well, we'll see if it has if that has good or not so good uh, results. Yeah, so I think the commentary and the satire is a mixed bag. Some of it's very entertaining and funny, and others is either it feels dated or... And some of it, it's just so preachy that it pulls me out of the moment a little bit. When characters yeah. speak to each other in speeches... And I compared it to you to the really bad exposition on episodes of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. <laughs> and I love Law and Order, but it's not so much on regular Law and Order, but Law and Order Special Victims Unit has this scene where inevitably two characters converse, quote unquote, with each other, where they just like spew a bunch of facts from a Washington Post well, or New York Times article. Yeah. And it's so obviously not an organic conversation, well, and also, your eyes just roll. Well, it also doesn't help, and we, we've talked about this a, a few times with other things in Spike Lee's recent films, where he'll have some really good actors and know how to direct them, and then he'll get, like, child actors that feel like he just pulled them out of, like, a middle school, like, first time ever acting class yeah i am really not a fan of spike lee's enchantment with non-professional actors yeah there and there was like another like there are at least a couple of child actors in this that felt very phony and false and it's like it would be one thing if maybe spike lee only made a movie every like 10 years or something <laughs> like that but the guy is like a master of film teacher at nyu yeah I'm sure actors are beating down their door. I'm sure there are so many great, talented actors who would pull out their own teeth for the opportunity and to again, work with Spike Lee. And again, to be fair, most of the actors in this are fine. I mean, yeah. I'm, I think DeWanda Wise is really strong. I think the actors who play... She's good. Um, she She's good. Uh, Jamie the, is played by... Uh, this is a nice name. Lyric Bent. Um, Greer Childs, played by Cleo Anthony, he's fine. You also have, there's some good performances I actually by... think the guy who plays Greer in the show is an improvement over the guy who plays Greer in the movie. Yeah, I might say that too. Um, someone who's not an improvement is Anthony Ramos, who plays Mars Blackman. He's bad. Yeah, and I feel like he, I, I mean, I've seen him in some of the, he's not consistent in the episodes, really. There are like, I don't think I even saw him at all in the last one. Yeah, actually, I have to say, in fairness to him, it's not like he's bad in literally every scene. In the first episode, he's flat out terrible. Yeah, and it's so weird because you would think that this is the guy that, that Spike Lee played. Yeah. He should be, like, the one that's on fire. Yeah, and when I watched the movie She's Gotta Have It, I thought to myself, while I appreciated Spike Lee's performance, I also thought, this is not a difficult character to play. Well, I was wrong, because Anthony Ramos is not up to the challenge. Well, he does I, get better. It's either that he is not to the challenge, or maybe he was misdirected. I don't know. Like It could be. Um, you know, maybe it was too close to Spike Lee, and he didn't know how to let it go. Maybe Spike Lee sabotaged him because he didn't want to be outshined. Wow, 
See, I'm giving you a look now. I saw a little bit of that sparkle in your eye, and I'm like, oh, I love you. Um, but yeah, this is, um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of other things to say. Maybe part of my problem, too, in this show, going back to Sex in the City for a second, because now we're dealing with this as a show. Um, because there's a, they, they brought over a little bit of the docu of the same kind of documentary feel in the first episode. Again, maybe it was more of like fan service mm-hmm. for people who like the film. But the thing is, we're kind of, Noel Darling is our main character, but that's a difference from when in Sex and the City, you have like four characters that mm-hmm. you can kind of cut around to. In this case, it's not quite the same. You yeah. kind of are just dealing with Noah's shit. And there are times where she's, you understand completely where she's coming from. It's nice to have a kind of character that's flawed like this, but is very interesting. But there are also times where you're just like, women, get over yourself. (laughs) And I, you know, I know that men are trash, but come on. There are a few Nola brunching scenes where she actually brunches with three other women. Oh God. Yeah. That felt the most, that felt. Sex in the City like, but also not at the same time. But the only friend of Nola who, it who has an independent plot going is Butt Implant Girl. Which let's see how that goes. I think that's going to take a dark turn. Yeah. So, I was speculating to Jack that I think Spike Lee is basing this on a real life butt implant tragedy. And I'd heard, city. I'd heard something of it. I had heard, I. I vaguely heard the butt thing. I heard more of the lip thing, where like there are people who get lip implants. Was... Well, the butt implants actually kill you. The bad butt implants. Right. Yeah. It's God. Oh, society. Oh my God. Do you think that like that person who got the butt implants was also like, you know, eating Tide Pods? um so i don't know what else to say about this so far i I think this was an interesting experiment though as far as again taking these two you know these two very distinctly made things by the same filmmaker and just kind of looking at how much he's changed yeah in the years since where you could still send some of that same spike lee but I almost equated a little bit to, even though this is a sequel, when I saw Train Spotting 2, um, how even though it's still trying to be set in the same world of the first Train Spotting, the director has changed so much mm-hmm. that you can kind of feel that on the material. Um, and I think this, that's the same case here, where Spike Lee is not, you know, at Spike Lee at 60 is not the same Spike Lee that he was when he was like 29. And, you know, just starting out, um, you know, this is someone who knows what he wants now. And sometimes (laughs) someone should tell him no. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, no, Spike Lee, maybe you shouldn't have animated sperm. And she, she, (laughs) so yeah, I, I have very mixed feelings about it, but I'm going to keep watching it. Yeah, I might, I will too. It's uneven, but there are good things about it. And I appreciate that he's going for it. I I mean... I, I No, there, there is a real artistic impulse. I think I still... And I would agree with you too that the movie is better in the sense that it tells its story... The movie is 80 minutes long or something mm-hmm. like that. Or maybe like 85 minutes long. 
it gets in, it gets out, it, it, it establishes its main characters, mm. it, it gives a little bit of time for some secondary characters as far as Opal and uh, Clorinda and a couple other people, uh, and they get a little bit more time in the series. Um, but at the same time, as you said, not to the extent that you felt this way, but I do think, yeah, they're... He's stretching things out that were more succinct in the original film. Yeah, so I'm interested to see where it's going to go in the second half because I felt like the episode we watched tonight seemed different even than every other episode because it was so not focused on Nola. Yeah, I'm wondering if the show will continue to do that where they actually will expand the show you know what what's going on in the lives of the boyfriends you know mm -hmm. it, you know are they you know it's one thing if you're only making the boyfriends characters in relation to nola but what's if you're actually expanding and showing what their lives are going on that was what made the that episode midway through Has he really made a movie interesting besides Chirac, like after since Chirac, before this uh he did a documentary about uh michael jackson and one of his albums Oh, I, don't I think I don't think he did anything fiction. I think he's been primarily working on this. There's actually a pretty oh, there's one really dated, uh, very ham-fisted reference uh, to Denzel losing the Oscar <laughs> in 1992 to Al Pacino for it. Man, that's like if that's like if Alfred Hitchcock stopped like his movie midway through to mention how like Psycho lost Best Director. <laughs> you know, it it, it it that that was ridiculous. Also, how there are times the one awkward thing. This is just a this is a small point. The way that she lays in movie references is very like, yeah, uh, like very stilted. Like, she makes, like, a 2001 reference, but she mentions it as Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space yeah. Odyssey. No one talks like that. Yeah. You would just say 2001. Yeah, I don't if even anything. think you would necessarily say A Space Odyssey. I've only ever heard it referred to as 2001 in and, casual conversation. And I get that Spike Lee maybe was trying to make a joke about pretentious film school snobs. Like, there's even a point where he stops the show like to have a reference to Rashomon yeah. which was I guess actually that was kind of entertaining but it it doesn't feel organic even if she is like a film enthusiast it, it feels mm -hmm. like uh yeah Denzel should have won for Malcolm X he also should have won he also I think they also said he needs to win for Fences <laughs> which dates the show a little bit yeah I actually think your point my biggest issue with this show is as entertaining as I find it at times, it rarely feels authentic to me. Yeah. Like, that's, that's that's the part of it when you, when you parse it all down. Even when I'm entertained by the show and even when I'm laughing, I'm thinking to myself, I'm entertained right now because these fictional characters are delivering clever Spike Lee speeches. Yeah, and that's the thing that makes it different. You know, Spike Lee in, in the 1986, he was someone who was really trying to prove himself as a filmmaker. He's trying to show the world, here's what I can do. Here's something that, you know, here, here's why I have a unique voice and I'm, I'm coming, you know, from the streets and, and all that. And now he's at a point where he, 
you know, it's, I get a Netflix deal. That's pretty cool. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need the work. Yeah. So, and she's got to have it the movie. The characters, even, even when they have exaggerated traits for comedic effect, the characters feel like people. They do. There are very few moments when I'm watching She's Gotta Have It where the characters feel like real people to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is funny because I know that this is a side note. I know that you had that problem, I think, a bit more than I did with uh, the Twin Peaks. Why well, couldn't even make it through Twin Peaks? No, well, we won't even talk about that right now. That, that'll that be a whole other podcast I'll do with someone else someday. Yeah, I'm not watching any more of it than I already did. Well, maybe you need to watch a little bit more. You need to watch a couple of scenes with Harry Dean Stanton. All right. Uh, but the point is, uh, so wrapping things up, if you need to watch She's Gotta Have It, watch the movie. But if you are really curious and are a Spike Lee fan, then you might want to check out one or two episodes of the show. Just don't go in expecting that it'll be exactly like the movie. I mean, it's it's not... It, it's it, again, and the other last thing too, aside from the authenticity, again, the movie was very distinctive visually. I don't think that carries over into the show exactly. Like it's very colorful, but it doesn't have that type of very like, ooh, ooh, that's a shot, that's a shot type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you agree or disagree with us, make sure to email at wageofcinema@gmail.com, and uh, make sure to uh, you know leave us. Uh, you know, emails and comments. We always love hearing uh, lots of your comments. Uh, I'd actually like to end this episode reading an, an email, by the way, because we got an email from someone who I will say listens to the show a little bit, um, and I'm, I'm glad that she does. Um, this comes from Miss Florence Crystal. <laughs> My mom. Hi. Um, Hi, other mother. Yes. She uh, sent this on uh this was actually right after we recorded our episode about um call me by your name and uh she said really liked call me by your name that's in the subject line and the email then says how very lovely for dr Corey hughes to have grown up in a generation where an uncomplicated love story between two gay men is so disturbingly dead vapid and boring and by the way, the father was gay and was so moved by his son getting to ha- have the life experience of love he had been denied. With undying love and all due respect from your previously known, in parentheses, other mother, because I'm presuming you have disowned me after reading this email. <laughs> well, thank you, Florence. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. I guess that was almost more put to you, because <laughs> I my because I think she the idea is that she liked the movie more and was trying to explain like how like you have no historical context. Well, as I told her when I spoke to her about it repeatedly, I enjoyed her theories about the film. I found them very entertaining, far more entertaining than the film itself. <laughs> I enjoyed her commentary about if- the film. It, she should make a movie of her telling her theories yeah. about Calling By Your Name so you can watch that over watching Calling By Your yes, Name instead. Yes, I would listen to her do a commentary track of Call Me By Your Name any day. Oh, but here's one last thing going back to She's Gotta Have It. 
This is just, I follow a guy in Letterboxd who writes kind of like sarcastic reviews of things. And he wrote, uh, rejected sequel ideas. She's got to have it. (laughs) 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 I guess like Stephen King's it. (laughs) That would be a crossover. Um, All right. So when we come back next time, we'll have more talk about movies and other things and uh actually black panther comes out soon so stay tuned for our review of that we'll we'll probably do a full wage of cinema group assemble so we you might hear some old friends come back for that who are not gone yet damn it so (laughs) don't worry um so until next time i am jack I am Corey. And remember, the wage of cinema is please, baby, please, baby, 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 please, baby, please, baby, please. And hugs. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's that's part of the new thing. It's no longer death. The wage of cinema is hugs. <laughs> Jesus, what are you doing with this podcast? <laughs> All right, bye. So you're bugging out, right? You're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go. If you don't, I'll still be here on this corner. Tube socks, tube socks, three fight hours, three fight hours. Tube socks, three fight hours. Fight out, fight out, fight out. Fight out.